Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Good evening. By pressing play, you've unlocked a door with the key of imagination. Beyond is another dimension, a dimension of sound, a dimension of mind, You're moving into a land of both shadow and substance, of things and ideas. Welcome to Agoraphobia, the Agora Podcast Network's spooktacular month of ghoulishly engaging content, celebrating the spirit of the Halloween season. So turn on all the lights, check all the closets and cupboards, look under the beds, and continue if you dare. Hello, my children. I, your prescient Pied Piper of the Paranormal, have returned to shepherd you through another year of tears and fears. Our first installment of Agoraphobia 2021 spotlights Benjamin H. Jacobs, who is giving listeners a taste of his new podcast, Why, though, a personal journey through my record collection? Which begs the question, is there anything more terrifying than Ben's taste in music? Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. 
Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello and welcome to Why The, a personal journey through my record collection. This is the show that asks that most important of all questions. Why is this record in my collection, and is it any good? My name is Benjamin Jacobs, the confused owner of the records and host of the show. This is the first Agoraphobia special. It's a small world after all. For those of you hearing me for the first time, welcome. This is a side project of mine. I usually show up here promoting Wittenberg to Westphalia, Wars of the Reformation. But today I'm doing my other, other show, which is Why Though? A Personal Journey Through My Record Collection, which is what it says on the box. Today, in honor of agoraphobia, I will be reviewing the scariest record in my collection, which is a promotional single of the music from the It's a Small World ride put out by the Disney Corporation in 1975. For many of you, this may not seem particularly scary, but trust me, this one will stay with you forever. The record single itself is actually gorgeous, a wonderful pressing of full-color picture vinyl with scenes from the eponymous ride. It has clearly been well-loved, probably by a child, but it is a thick and sturdy piece that was probably fairly expensive at the time. The liner notes consist of a single piece of cardboard. On one side are the lyrics, on the other side is a drawing of a bunch of kids in a hot air balloon, with some promotional text about the record. With the record, this was all contained in a sturdy plastic cover, but with no sleeve. This is an odd mismatch of cheap packaging materials with a somewhat elaborate product, and much of the scuffing of the record itself is probably down to this less-than-ideal packaging situation. Nonetheless, it was a lovely gift for a child. This lovely little piece was probably purchased by my stepmother for my stepsister many years ago when they were visiting the Magic Kingdom in Florida. I say probably because they don't really remember. It was quite a while ago, and probably almost definitely before I met them. Given the rough time frame, my stepmother thinks she knows which trip it was, but doesn't actually remember making the purchase. In any case, it was a lovely family trip, I'm sure, as they have a bunch of family down there and they would have been excited to see them. And my stepsister would have been fairly young at the time. Neither my stepmother or my stepsister are the kind of weird nerd that would keep around records, so they were both happy to pass it on to me. And even though I am, you know, an adult, I was happy to have it, just because the single is such a lovely piece visually. Listening to it was always unpleasant, but maybe I'm going to frame it or something after this. The ride itself was originally developed for the 1964 World's Fair, and its creation is deeply tied to the history of that event. The story actually starts in 1939, when Robert Moses, the young up-and-coming director of the New York City Park System and bete noir of modern urban planning, tried to use a World's Fair to redevelop a landfill site in Queens, New York. 
The event was relatively popular with the public, but the start of World War II meant that they never got the funds needed to really run things properly or fulfill Moses' full vision for the event. Also, the fair has been accused of having a soft policy of excluding African Americans from the grounds, and turning away paying customers and willing workers may have been a mistake, as the investors in the fair only got 50 cents for every dollar they invested. Oops. Fast forward to the 1960s, when a group of New York City businessmen conceived of the idea that a World's Fair would boost tourism to the city in a time when the city's fortunes were slipping. Robert Moses rapidly hijacked the project as a way to finish the development he had started in 1939. Given the city's flagging financial situation, there wouldn't be a ton of government money to help make this happen, but there would be some, and the difference would be made up from the ticket sales to the event and by corporate sponsorships. Given the massive amount of money they would need to spend to build this project, they figured that they could make their money back if they kept the site open for around two years, and if they charged the exhibitors rent during that time. After all, with an event like this, which was so prestigious in a market like New York City, people should be lining up to have their pavilions at the event. What could possibly go wrong? Now, a word about World's Fairs. There was and is a full international organization that helps put these events on, namely the Paris-based Bureau of International Expositions, also known as BIE. Like all organizations, they have an idea of how these things are supposed to go, and what they are for, and they have established rules that host countries have to follow to get their event officially considered a World's Fair. To it, the purpose of a World's Fair is a way to bring culture, history, and new technology together in one event to people of many backgrounds. Of course, countries and companies use this to market their products, but the core point of this was very kumbaya. The events are also explicitly supposed to be temporary to help maintain the specialness of the brand and to allow many countries to host. Granted, most World's Fairs leave some sort of landmark behind, but the bulk of the materials from the event are taken down afterwards. Now, the U.S. didn't belong to the BIE, but as most of the countries in the world did belong to it, and as the BIE were willing to sign off on fairs by non-member countries so long as they followed the rules, American cities that wanted to host a fair historically would go to them for approval when they wanted to do a fair. This was done by Seattle, for example, when they had their fair in 1962 two years before New York. And then also Montreal did that for their expo in 1967. Of course, they're not American, but notice the dates. Now, the rules put forward to further the goals of the BIE are, of course, very numerous. But key to our story is that the fair can only be six months long. The exhibitors, who would come from countries around the world, some of which were fairly poor, were not to be charged rent for their display. And no country could have fairs less than 10 years apart. As you may have noticed... Robert Moses and his chums had decided to violate each of these rules, which were some of the big ones, and had pretty much just walked into a time slot already set aside for Seattle and Montreal. Nice. Robert Moses went to Paris to tell the BIE why this was fine, actually, and the BIE was duly unimpressed. When they refused to grant permission for the fair, Moses compounded the problem. Rather than try to negotiate or, you know, change his plan by a few years... Moses went to the press, telling reporters that the BIE was a bunch of useless, puffed-up bureaucrats, and he didn't need their permission anyway because America and his plans were good, actually. Now, I should just add quickly, uh, I'm paraphrasing, 
But also, this was all entirely in character for Moses, and he probably thought it would work to bring the BIE on side. Moses was, at the time, a beloved figure, both in New York and even nationally and internationally respected. The public knew him as the man who finally forced the New York City park system to be less stuffy and to build things like playgrounds and baseball fields so poor city kids would have places to play. He was seen as an incorruptible public servant, which is mostly true. He didn't really do anything to enrich himself financially, he didn't need it. And a person who wanted to modernize New York's infrastructure. His policies, in the regard of modernizing infrastructure, would influence more than a few European cities rebuilding from World War II and most American cities to their detriment. A big part of his success was down to using this image of the upright technocrat to force his plans past the usual red tape. Often, this was a good thing, like with the playgrounds and stuff. When corrupt machine politics got in his way, Moses could go to the press and name names. When it became a popularity contest between a corrupt elected politician and the unelected Robert Moses, who was just trying to build swimming pools for the kids... The elected officials often found that they were easier to fire than Moses was. It was less of a good thing when he was plowing yet another highway through yet another low-income neighborhood, a practice which would eventually run him afoul of the public, but only after he had done untold damage to the society of New York City, but I digress. Regardless, at this point, he was in Paris, not in New York. The idealistic technocrat functionaries and diplomats at the BIE were not corrupt politicians, and were not beholden to the citizens and opinions of the United States of America. Indeed, the USA was already being seen by Charles de Gaulle's France as a tad overmighty in bullying, and the European public and governments viewed this entire situation as a simply somewhat bizarre attempt at bullying by a minor American official to an international organization. As a result, the BIE responded to Moses' attempt at popularism by putting their foot down. They publicly condemned the fair, whereupon all 40 of their member states pulled out, leaving Moses somewhat scrambling for participants to fill in the event spaces. The organizations that did participate were from groups that didn't care about the BIE rules, or who were directly susceptible to pressure from the United States government. So, Mexico and post-war Japan, on the one hand, then there were the actual state governments of the United States who each had pavilions, which was not something that was usual in world fairs. And of course, then there was a selection of international organizations who needed any way they could to fundraise and things like that. Notably in this category was UNICEF, the UN-run charity organization that assists children in developing countries and disaster areas. Of course, such groups often could not afford the rental fees and development costs of participation in the fair, and so Moses was forced to double down on using connections to convince corporate sponsors to help pay for the running of the event. In the case of UNICEF, they were way too busy feeding children to spend money on running an exhibit, but Moses needed this veneer of internationalism over what was becoming a giant corporate advertising spectacle, and that is how the Pepsi Corporation ended up sponsoring UNICEF's installation tentatively called Children's World, in line with UNICEF's key mission. One thing that Robert Moses was very concerned about, always, was the type of recreation that was going to be permitted in the fair, and also outside the fair, and basically in the city in general. While rather progressive in terms of wanting to provide recreational space for poor families, he had an overall view of recreation that we might call somewhat puritanical. He did not like people drinking or gambling, or listening to the wrong kind of music or dancing inappropriately. 
New York was somewhat notorious for, for all these activities. And so in the lead up to the World's Fair, he worked with Mayor Lindsay Wagner of New York City to begin a massive cleanup of New York. Or, in other words, a massive crackdown on what they called vice. Okay, now, to be fair, that's sort of to be expected from any city before a major international event. But to understand what this implied, remember, this was the mid-1960s. And one of the things that was considered a vice in 1960s New York was something like men at bars dancing with other men. Or women dancing with women. Or drag queens. Or you see where I'm going with this. Amongst the places that ended up being targeted for heavy police pressure were the gay bars in Greenwich Village, which is how Robert Moses' bizarre obsession with doing a World's Fair in 1964 specifically led to the Stonewall Riots and the entire modern gay rights movement. But again, I digress. In terms of Small World, it isn't clear to me that Pepsi even wanted to be involved with the fair, which, you know, I can't really blame them given everything I've just said. But basically, they spent so long arguing about what kind of ride it would be, and who was going to do it, and all this stuff, that they entirely basically ran out of time to develop said ride. Joan Crawford, the widow of a former CEO of Pepsi, got so fed up with the situation that she asked her friend, Walt Disney, to drop a proposal, and then just presented it to the board directors as a faint accompli. Now, Disney, it should be said, was not an entirely random or bad choice. Actually, it was a good choice. Beyond being a famous purveyor of children's entertainment, and the ride being for a children's charity, Disney was already developing several of the other attractions for the fair, and the company's technicians and subcontractors had the necessary skills and productive capacity to do it. It was going to be tight, but they could do it. And so Disney's team sat down and churned out the ride in just 11 months getting two patents in the process that are still key components of many modern Disney boat rides. Notably, the internationally renowned artist and Disney employee Mary Blair helped establish the color palette for the ride and worked on the design of the puppets. Her fingerprints are kind of all over this thing, and I have to say, doing research for this gave me the opportunity to look up a bunch of her work, which is really splendid, so give her a look. The original ride concept of Children's World was for the rider to move through different cultural regions, and in each region, the national anthem of each country was going to be played. And as that happened, a bunch of little puppets would dance around. As you probably can imagine, playing the anthems together in a single enclosed space resulted in a horrific cacophony, rather than anything that would be fun or enjoyable. To help solve this problem with the concept, Disney brought in longtime collaborators, the Sherman Brothers, to come up with something that could be translated into different languages, but could be sung as a round so the different lands' music would harmonize. The Sherman Brothers, who wrote the music on Mary Poppins and many, many, many other things that you would recognize, were very heavily influenced by the recent Cuban Missile Crisis when they sat down to write the song. Focusing on themes of peace and harmony and overcoming divisions by focusing on a common humanity became central to the song. Walt Disney loved the resulting song so much that he ended up renaming the entire ride after it, It's a Small World After All. The ride was incredibly successful from the moment it opened. In the two years of the fair's run, it was ridden more than 10 million times and raised a ton of money for UNICEF, which is great. Part of this was down to the fast turnaround time of the boat system used, which allowed more riders per hour than the other rides at the fair. 
It was actually such a successful concept that Disney partially rebuilt the Pirates of the Caribbean ride to use the same boat system, which is again why those patents are still in use today. The World's Fair in general was also a huge hit in terms of the public in New York. Pretty much everyone went, often multiple times. The admission rates were relatively affordable, and for some reason, the rates kept dropping? And so, most people who lived in New York at the time have fond memories of one kind or another of, you know, maybe going to the fair or at least driving by. And many of its landmarks remain beloved symbols of Queens, Brooklyn, and Coney Island to this day. From a financial point of view, however, the fair was a complete catastrophe. The fair corporation created to run the event uh, engaged in some financial chicanery. They borrowed millions of dollars from investors using the expected returns from the front gate ticket sales as collateral. However, they were using both years of ticket sales of the event to borrow money to cover only the first year of operations costs. Surely the second year would pay for it, but it didn't work out. And while the fair was extremely popular with New Yorkers and attracted some out-of-town tourists in the first year, by the second year the crowds had reduced to a reasonably moderate level, which was financially disastrous for this heavily over-leveraged park concept. The owners frantically slashed prices to drive attendance, but it didn't work. Ultimately, the fair corporation collapsed when the fair closed, and investors only got 20 cents for every dollar they invested, which makes the 1939 one not seem so bad, I guess. Somehow, in this whole debacle, no one went to jail. But with the fair ended, the process of deconstructing the park began, and so crews quickly came in to strip out all the stuff that hadn't been planned as permanent features. This included the Small World ride. Disney, of course, was not going to let such a successful rainmaker go away after just two years. Disney owned the relevant intellectual property. I mean, it's Disney. And so they simply went in, collected all the parts that could be removed, and made a place for the new ride in Disneyland. There were some tweaks and some updates as a result of the new location, but substantially the ride in California is the same ride that went into Queens in 1964. In Disneyland 2, the ride was, and in fact remains, one of the most popular attractions in the park. It has become so iconic that the ride was recreated in the Magic Kingdom in Florida, which is where my stepmother and my stepsister got this single. And then it was recreated in Tokyo Disney, and at Euro Disney, Hong Kong Disney, they may be working on a movie, blah blah blah. Now, I should probably get down to telling you all about the ride itself, and the music contained therein. In case you haven't gone, in the ride, visitors board boats that are floating along a track through the attraction. It all takes about 15 minutes. The attraction consists of hundreds of animatronic dolls, organized into sections that represent different parts of the world, roughly. The dolls in each section are decked out as different ethnic stereotypes. I mean, they are dressed as different cultures. The dolls dance for the visitors, and in each section, the dolls sing a very catchy and iconic tune that I will not be playing in this episode, as there is nothing on Earth scarier than a Disney copyright lawyer. Uh, but in, in any case, in each section, they sing the same song, but using a different language. The entire thing is about togetherness and cooperation between and across cultures, and the things that all children share. As mentioned earlier, the song is intended to function as a polyphony of sorts. On the ride itself, there are different versions of the song in different languages played in the different regions, as I just said, and they come together as you go through the ride to form this sort of a polyphony with different languages fading in and out and different kinds of instrumentation as well. 
So in the ride, it works by playing different things in different places at different speakers. On the recording, this effect was achieved by having different groups of children in a choir singing different parts to the accompaniment of an orchestra with instruments that changed and faded in and out according to the culture being presented. For example, in the English language version, they use a tuba and drums and stuff. In the Swiss section, they have someone yodeling in the background, if you can believe it. And in the Arabian section, they have reed flutes. Now, there is no way that a ride made in the early 1960s would pass muster in terms of modern racial justice concepts. But we are talking about a ride whose goal was promoting international harmony. So I went into this, having not heard the song in something like 15 years or so, being able to poke some light fun at certain things on the ride, but, you know, the overall message is wholesome. Like, summing up the entirety of the cultures in East Asian landmass into a single region while clearly differentiating Germany, France, and Switzerland in the European section, that doesn't fly these days. But, you know, some light fun. Instead, in listening to the music for this review, I was kind of taken off guard by how very, very racist it was. In all these sections, it's it's there. But it's, it's a small world. It is what it is. But when the Asian section started, I was just sort of stopped in my tracks, and I said to my cat, wow, that's racist. It's not that they're saying anything in the lyrics or anything in the singing that's disrespectful. So my reaction is a bit hard to articulate. But basically... So the section starts off with a gong and then proceeds to use the same sorts of instruments used in, like, Warner Brothers cartoons when they're depicting East Asian subject matter. You know, in those episodes of the Warner Brothers that they don't show on TV anymore. Now, it's not like I'm an expert on the subject of classical Chinese music, but I've watched my share of movies and TV shows and cartoons from that general part of the world. And I only ever hear this selection of instrumentation and these tunes in American cartoons making fun of East Asian cultures. Certainly some of the instruments, particularly the stringed instruments, you know, I've seen them used in serious depictions of traditional music. But in these old American depictions, they often take, they take the muku, I believe it's called. Uh, it's also called the wooden fish. And they bring that way up to the front of the arrangement. This instrument is usually, I, I don't want to say it's never used in larger compositions, because again, I'm not an expert, but my understanding is that it's usually associated with Buddhist rituals, where it's used for keeping time. That said, in these Western versions of East Asian music, it is taken out of context and brought way up to the front of the arrangement, where it sounds, frankly, silly, which is the point in the It's a Small World version, they even add in this weird brass flare that just kind of highlights how weird everything is that's going on. It's like, whoa, this is wild. It's cringe. Now, to be fair, the Swiss are being represented by having yodeling as their sole musical tradition, so it's not like the East Asian cultural sphere is alone in being depicted in a somewhat silly manner in a children's ride. But yeah, that one really produced a very visceral reaction in me, and your mileage may vary, this was my reaction. Now, before I move on, I should address side two of the record. This is a single, and as is tradition with the medium, the B-side is a different version of the same song on side A. In this case, the song on side B is a more heavily produced version of the song, sung by adults, and with instrumentation by a full musical orchestra. It sounds like nothing so much as a musical number made for a Broadway show in the 1960s, which, 
you know, it was the 1960s and it was Disney and it was the Sherman Brothers, so this isn't a surprise. There's also a short instrumental rendition of all the international music sections without vocals, so you can really just enjoy how jarring some of these choices are. Now, the lyrics are simple. Most of us only remember the first verse. There are two verses. But even in that case, the lyrics are simple as befits a song with a handful of lines to allow 15 minutes of multilingual polyphony. The lyrics are arguably more sophisticated than you remember. It isn't just sunshine and rainbows. It's a world of laughter and a world of tears. All the happy imagery is contrasted with sad imagery, and there's a recognition that there are separations, but also things that pull people together. The fact that this was written as part of a UNICEF campaign in the wake of the Cuban Missile Crisis makes this lyrical contrapposto all the more poignant, and you can sort of see where the writers were coming from. Once you know that context, it really helps you reflect on the good work being done by UNICEF to help feed and educate and heal children born into poverty, and then how that work was threatened by a game of brinksmanship engaged in by unthinking adults half a planet away. Ultimately, I think the song, the lovely single, and the story of the ride, and how it fit into the 1964 World's Fair fiasco, all kind of harmonize well together. There's a core nugget of good intentions and genuine artistry and skill here, but they cannot be separated from a lot of very ugly realities that surround them. You can't excuse the cloying, casual bigotry of the musical choices without bringing in the context of the times, and as soon as you do that, you're forced to confront the purpose of this cultural artifact. Their creation was catalyzed by a power-tripping local tyrant who was attempting to use a veneer of international understanding and communication to pay for a pet development project that was really just intended to help his city. Now, to be sure, the project was intended to benefit the people of New York City, not Moses himself, but the absolute hubris in the manner used to execute the plan doomed it, and ultimately galvanized the committing of untold injustices on the very people of New York that Moses thought he was seeking to help. The only real winners were the corporations of the United States, as had been feared all along by the BIE. History books still talk about the General Motors Pavilion or the rides put together by AT&T. Of course, Disney used the entire thing to further develop the techniques that would eventually make Disneyland such a huge success. Today, Small World is iconic and is a prisoner of that status in many ways. Despite changing feelings about how race should be portrayed and new information about once distant and mysterious cultures... Not to mention changing tastes as regards a room full of aging, dusty, creepy dancing puppets, the ride remains largely frozen in amber. Can you imagine the PR explosion if Disney tried to update the ride? Better to not talk about it too much. Let nostalgic adults keep hauling their kids onto it year after year, and let everyone take it for granted. I have to say I'm somewhat curious about how the ride is handled in Hong Kong and Tokyo. Just, you know, not enough to ever pay the money to go. If you know, you know, maybe get in touch. Ultimately, however, there is one thing that will stick with us. Forever. And that is the music. Because this song is the most unremittingly annoying earworm in history. Despite being cloyingly sweet and sing-songy, it gets in your brain. And I have not sung one note of the song today, and yet most of you already have it stuck in your head. It's a testament to the talent of the Sherman Brothers, but it is a curse they unleashed on the world that none of us will ever escape. Thank you all very much for listening. If you want to get more information about my show, 
I'm on Twitter at W2W Podcast. You can check out the website for Why Though at whythoughapodcast.weebly.com, and that's spelled Y-T-H-O, no spaces. The podcast is available on all places where good podcasts are given away for free. So I hope to hear from you some other time as I engage on this weird journey through things I happen to own. Bye for now. One last quick addendum. Uh, it, the time that I recorded this episode, I was obviously under the impression that uh, It's a Small World was under copyright by the Disney Corporation. Um, it turns out that, at least it's said in a lot of places, that uh, by UNICEF's request, the song was kept copyright free. Now, there's some evidence against that as well, um, but I figured, what the heck? It's agoraphobia. Let's party. So, with that, Thank you all for listening, and uh, I'll speak to you next time. And in the meantime, I hope that you find the answers you seek in your record collection. A warm welcome back to those of you who made it back. And a little bit of advice to take with you before you go. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Not all knowledge is safe, and some things you can't unhear. The smartest of you will count your blessings and stay clear of dark corners and dangerous downloads. But those of you more daring who laugh in the face of fear will undoubtedly be back like a moth drawn to the flame for the next installment of Agoraphobia. Agoraphobia.